Thank you, choir, for sharing that beautiful reminder of the hope of Jubilee, the, the, the final and true Jubilee that God will bring about in the return of Christ. And uh, as we begin today, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25, as we get into what I think is possibly the most beautiful passage in all of the book of Romans. In fact, it's one of the most beautiful passages I feel in all of Scripture, and it has a lot to, to give us today, uh, and we'll, we'll be fleshing it out today and next Sunday and the Sunday after that as we work through this passage in the book of Romans in chapter 8. And I will say, uh, I, was, I was probably, I don't know if I was enjoying it more than everybody else, but I was really enjoying our time of singing and scripture reading and prayer today because I knew that this passage was coming and this passage so beautifully fits with the things that we have already sung. And and Bill and I uh, marvel at the ways that the Holy Spirit works out the songs that we sing and the scripture that we read and the song that the choir sings and all that. Uh, You know, we, we sort of sort of plan these things. Uh, uh, Glenda picks out the, the hymns each week and, and uh, I have set forward a scripture reading plan that we're reading through and all that. But there are every Sunday the Holy Spirit works through the things that we do. But there are certain Sundays where he brings together the, the song and the scripture reading and all of that so that it fits so neatly together to go with the sermon. And today is especially that. We sang, It is well with my soul, which is a song about suffering and being uh, and enduring through pain and trial. Uh, Tracy read from Scripture about the ways that the Lord delivers us and is with us in our suffering. And so, uh, and, the, and the choir sang about the hope of glory and the, the future hope that we have. And all of that goes right together. And I hope you see very clearly how it goes right together into the passage that we're going to study today in my sermon. And so uh, as we've worked through the book of Romans, we've gotten to a a patch of verses, a a set of passages in which Paul is is answering questions to the, the gospel that he's kind of worked out, the doctrine of salvation that he's worked out in the first five chapters of the book of Romans. And so we've, he's answered a bunch of hard questions about uh, what salvation means in the real world, where it hit, where the rubber meets the road. How does our salvation apply to the struggle against sin? Does it mean that because we're saved by grace that we can go on sinning, that grace shall abound, that grace may abound? Does it mean that uh, if the law, if we're set free from the law, then we can just go on sinning and do what we want? And if we're not, if we still need to be obedient and live a holy life, what is our motivation for doing that? And how are we able to overcome the, the temptations of sin? Because as we saw in Romans chapter 7, there's this this burden that even the Christian has of living in the flesh, even as we are enabled by the Holy Spirit to overcome temptation and to live for Christ, yet there's still this corruption of the flesh that pulls us back, that we're always wrestling against and struggling against. And so in chapter 8, Paul has begun to work out the how that 
benefits us, how the the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives benefits us even as we face trials and temptations and struggles of many many kinds. And so starting in verse 18 of Romans chapter 8, through the end of the chapter, Paul turns his attention to this single focus, and that is, how is the Christian to live with strength and perseverance in this present age? So if uh, the issue is, if the truth is that we are always, on a daily basis, we are always wrestling, we're in this constant wrestling match between the flesh and the spirit, And if our flesh is still anchored to this present age and under the corruption of sin and the old habits that we have developed. So um, but at the same time, the Holy Spirit has given us new life, which changes our desires and the direction of our lives. If all of that is true and there's a struggle between the flesh and the spirit that ends only in our death. How is it? that we're to overcome and to persevere in the midst of temptations and pains and ailments and losses and persecution and strife of many kind. How is it that we're to faithfully live the Christian life in this world for 70, 80, 90 years, faithfully walking after Christ? And how are we to abide in Christ even as we go through all of those struggles. So Paul knows that this is a a real issue and a real question. So he says in verse 17, right before our passage for today, he says that we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And so the rest of the chapter, Paul is going to devote to how the Christian can suffer well in this present age. How is it that we can live a life of hopeful suffering as we walk through this corrupt world and live with this corrupt flesh and seek to honor and glorify our Savior? So that statement begs the question of how we are to suffer with Christ in the present age. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to explore the answer to that question, starting in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. So follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. God's word says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. 
for we uh, for uh, for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we study from your word today, Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding. Lord, that you would show us the way of hopeful suffering as we seek to live obedient to you, even as we suffer in this life from pains and trials and persecution of many kinds. Lord, that we would be faithful in it as we seek to walk after you. That we would not be bound by this world or find our hope in the things of this world, but we would find our hope in the future glory that you would bring for us. Father, I pray that you would bless us now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So this morning, I want you to see two points from this passage. And I want you to see that suffering with Christ involves two things. It involves an honest understanding of the world, and it involves hopeful grief. So an honest understanding of the world and hopeful grief. So first, let's consider how we are to have an honest understanding of the world from verses 18 through 22. So Paul starts in verse 18 by reminding us that the suffering that we face now will pale in comparison to the glories that we will see when Christ returns. What we know in this life doesn't even begin to compare to what God has in store for us. And that truth extends to every aspect of the creation. Now, as as Americans, as those who've kind of grown up in Western uh, philosophy and a Western way of thinking, we can kind of get into this idea that, you know, really... Uh, All this world is trash. All this world is not worth anything. And and God's going to totally destroy it. And really all we have to hope for is a spiritual life, a a life of disembodied uh, existence in in puffy clouds up in heaven. We're going to all going to get wings and we're going to be cute little babies floating around in the in the spiritual realm. But what Paul deals with here is the idea that. Yes, every aspect of our lives, our bodies, the creation around us, everything about us is affected by the fall. But there is a hope of God's redeeming work that goes all the way through. It's shot through not only our lives and the hope of resurrection that he would bring to our lives as humans, but also a hope of a renewed and new creation. And so in verses 19 through 22, he says that the creation, it waits and it suffers and it groans with anticipation of what God is going to do when he brings about the fulfillment of all things. You see, the creation around us as beautiful as it is, and I have to say, I, I love being outdoors. I love doing outdoor things. I, I would prefer to be outdoors to indoors watching TV any day of the week. But as beautiful and as awe-inspiring as it is, the world around us is actually corrupted just like our bodies are corrupted. Remember, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, God finds Adam and Eve hiding in the Garden of Eden and they've sewn fig leaves together to cover themselves and they're ashamed and 
and God finally gets them to confess what they've done and and Eve uh, or Adam blames the woman and the woman blames uh, the serpent and finally God begins to pronounce judgment and curses on the serpent and then the woman and then finally in verse 17 he pronounces curses on Adam himself and part of that curse is that he curses the ground the ground everything about the creation everything about the created order everything from the the most lofty thing that you can think of government itself to the dirt that we plow to plant things, everything in this creation has been affected by the fall of Adam. It has been cursed by the sin of Adam. So weeds grow in our gardens. And we, you know, if you want to grow weeds, you till up the ground and you plant squash seeds and then you can grow weeds, right? Um, if, if you want to... Uh, it, all the food that we get... We get by difficulty. We get by toil. We have to be mindful of what we eat even because pretty much everything we eat can kill us. And if we eat too much of it, it can kill us. If we eat too little of it, it can kill us. If we, uh, if we eat certain things that are poisonous, they can kill us. We are infected. We are shot through. This creation is shot through with the curse and death reigns in creation just like it reigns in our bodies and so it's a it's a truth of this life that in order for you to live something else must die even for a vegan i'm sorry to ruin it for you if you're a vegan but when you eat that lettuce the lettuce dies okay it, it everything in order to live, something else must die. This truth about creation should call us to an honest view of the world around us. But up until recently, we live, we've lived in such a, uh, a significant stretch of prosperity and decadence in our country that we tend to forget that the world that we live in is not heaven. Since the 1980s, we have had a relative period of economic stability and major advances in technology and medicine and a fairly, a fairly now, a fairly stable political climate. Now, certainly that's all been turned on its head and changed lately because of the pandemic and inflation and a constant political bickering. And we've been reminded, I think, a little bit at least in this pandemic and all of the last few thing, few years of, of turmoil, we've been re- reminded that we're not invincible, that medicine can't fix everything, and that our political leaders don't really have the answers. Even still, it's common for Americans to adopt an idealistic view of the world around us. It's common for us to adopt an idealistic view of our circumstances. Because we live in such decadence and don't struggle as much of the rest of the world does, we can get the idea that we're living in heaven right now. Or, with just a little bit of effort, we can be. 
So we see this in the way people treat their leisure. Many people just live for the weekend, whether that's in uh, how they spend their money to buy uh, substances and to enjoy the weekend by uh, living it up and, and, and drinking and, and doing as much as they can to, to wash away the week before. Or they put all their extra resources into a nice boat or a lake house, uh, expecting that they can find heaven on earth in those places and in those things. Others put all their resources and their hope into their retirement, thinking that if they do that, then they can relax and travel and enjoy heaven on earth then. We also see it in the way that people treat their health. We have, in this country, in my opinion, we have a terrible overconfidence in the power of medicine to heal. Some live in the luxury of high-calorie foods and leisurely activities, and they assume that if they uh, are diagnosed with a disease as a result of that lifestyle, then they can just get a prescription to fix it, and medicine will be the solution to all their problems. On the flip side of that, though, you have people that are ultra-obsessed with and believe that a right level, an obsessed level, of fitness and health will somehow bring about a fountain of youth and they will avoid ever dying or, or ever running into any serious health problems. Still others don't look at leisure or health to find heaven on earth. Instead, they look to the political arena, thinking that this next election will deliver us from the evils of our current administration and usher in utopia finally. Many believe that we are just one law or one president away from a righteous country that will be heaven on earth. Yet pandemics happen whether we have a great president or a foolish one. Wars rage in spite of the right foreign policy. School shootings and violence on the streets don't seem to be affected by the color of the president's tie. Now, don't get me wrong. It's good to save save and plan for retirement. Medicine, fitness, and healthy eating can all be good things that can improve your life and help you live longer. We should be concerned with our political environment, and we should uh, be concerned with the common good of all people in our country. But none of those things can change the fact that we live in a fallen, corrupt creation that is groaning to be made new. So we should hold loosely to this present age. We should enjoy times of leisure. I'm not saying that you can't go out on the lake and you can't buy a boat or you can't do uh, things on the weekend. What I'm saying is that those things, the priority of those things should pale in comparison to our commitment to glorifying God and in our worship, in our work, and in our witness. In fact, even those things of leisure should be an opportunity to glorify God with our leisure. We should be mindful of our health, but we should never think that our salvation is wrapped up in our health. We should care about the direction of our country and be wise in how we vote, but we shouldn't replace our hope for the return of Christ with a politician's promises. So so second, let's consider 
how we can suffer with hopeful grief. In verses 23 through 25, Paul says that the creation isn't the only thing that is groaning. We as believers are groaning as well as we wait for deliverance. Now, I want you to catch what Paul is saying here, because groaning, in my opinion, is not the best word to describe what Paul is talking about here. The, the Greek word for groan that we have there is stenazo, which means it can also mean to grieve or to sigh. So in other words, as we wait on the Lord's deliverance, as we wait for the Lord to bring about the end of this sinful age and the glory of the age to come, we grieve and we sigh for our final deliverance. We don't hold tightly to this life. We don't uh, live like the nihilist either who thinks, well, nothing is meaningless and therefore we should just do whatever we want to do and kind of laugh off this world. No, we grieve. We grieve sin, both personally and globally. So we grieve the way that our sin and the sins of the world affect our families and our churches and our communities. We also grieve the corruption of this world because we know that it isn't the way that it should be. So when a brother or a sister or a friend or a family member comes down with a cancer diagnosis, we grieve that and we pray for healing in that because we know that that is not the way God will finally bring about the true and right life. And that is not the way the world should be. And when someone dies, we don't uh, shake it off. We don't think that it doesn't mean anything. We don't assume that because uh, someone has lost someone that they should just be quick to get over it or ignore it. We mourn with those who mourn because life is precious and death isn't the way things should be. But our grief isn't meaningless or aimless. We don't grieve because we, have, we lack hope. In fact, we grieve with hope. So we grieve while we wait for adoption and redemption. You see, there will be a day, as the choir sang before I got up here, there will be a day when Christ will return. And on that day, we will call, uh, He will call us forth from the ground to be made new. On that day, our bodies will no longer be corrupted by sin or the curse. On that day, the world will be made new and God will dwell with mankind. And until that day, we wait. We don't wait aimlessly. We don't wait meaninglessly. We wait with hope. So you might be thinking, well, preacher, that's all great and fine and good, and that's a good platitude to live by. I'll be sure to print that out and put it on my, my wall and look at that every day. But how do we hope when the way is so hard? How can I hope when I struggle against sin while others live it up and get all the things that they ever want? How can I hope when at every turn it seems like the world is set against me? So let me end by giving three practices of hope that we find from Scripture. First, 
We can hope by patiently waiting on God. So Psalm 37 verse 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. So the, psalm, the psalmist teaches us to keep our eyes focused on the Lord, not on others around us. It teaches us to look to God and to wait on Him, not to the way the world is around us and the people who are around us. Yes, people may live in luxury and live in the luxury of their sins. They may enjoy success by going the way of the world, but their end is destruction. While God has promised eternal life to those who wait on Him. Along with that, secondly, we should fix our eyes on eternal things. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So no matter how great this life can be, no matter how fruitful our work can be, no matter how joyful the things of this life can be, we have to remember that the things of this world are temporary. God is going to bring about a new creation. He's going to renew and restore the, the glory of His creation. He is going to bring about a new heavens and a new earth. And we have to remember that even the creation itself is groaning. It's grieving too, longing for that new world to come. And if the creation is groaning, then we should too. We should always be looking ahead. We should always be striving for those things that God values. We should always be focused on the glory of God and the worship of God and the testimony of God in the world. We should always be pointing to and looking for that hope of the return of Christ because that is our eternal hope. What's going on around us is, is, is horrible. Things are happening that we don't like and we don't want. And uh, we hate that the glory of God is being diminished in areas of our lives and in areas of our country and in areas of our government. But our ultimate hope is not on those things that are temporary. Our ultimate hope are on the, is on the unseen things. The things that God is bringing about by the power of His Spirit and His work in the world. And we should look forward in anticipation and in hope of those things. Lastly, we must be sober-minded. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8 says, But since we belong to that day, let us be sober, put on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Now, I think we tend to get tripped up in this idea of soberness because we read that and we've kind of reduced it down to just drunkenness. And now, don't hear me wrong on this. You shouldn't be a drunkard, okay? You should devote yourself to soberness in that respect too. But soberness is a larger category in Scripture than just avoiding being drunk. 
It deals with uh, avoiding or the abuse of anything. It deals with being overly obsessed with anything of this world. And so when Paul says that we are to be sober as we wait on that day, it means that we're to be alert. We're to be watching for that day. You know, Jesus gives the parable of the ten virgins. And he says that there, was, uh, there were ten virgins that all had a lamp in their hands and they were waiting on the groom to come and five of the virgins allowed the oil to run out in their lamp and the other five didn't. They kept the lamp burning. They were waiting patiently. They were doing the things that they were supposed to do, waiting on the groom to come. And when he finally came, the five that didn't keep their lamp burning, they weren't ready. But the five that did, they were ready. And so we're to be like those five virgins that wait and watch and do the things that we're, do, we're supposed to do. We're not to be absorbed in this world. We're not to make idols out of the things of this world. We're to do the, the things that we are gifted to do. We're to work faithfully in our jobs. We're to be faithful fathers and mothers and children. We're to be faithful husbands and wives. We're to do all of that. But we're not doing it because we're obsessed with those things. We're doing it for the glory of God. We're not obsessed with our work as a thing in and of itself. We're obsessed with our, we work so that we can bring glory to God and provide for our families. We're not even obsessed with our families as a thing in, of a, in and of itself. We're working and raising a godly Christian home so that we can raise up the next generation of faithful Christians and we can glorify God in our families. We're not absorbed in the things of this world, we are sober in the way that we live in this world. And so with these practices of hope in mind, may we leave ready to glorify God as we patiently wait on Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Word. Lord, we thank You for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, a hope that uh, is with us even as we suffer. Lord, that we're not uh, absorbed with the things of this world like the rest of mankind is. We're not so devoted to the creation order as it is now that we are uh, constantly focused on it, making all of our lives revolve around the things of this world, but rather that we are focused on the age to come. We are looking forward with anticipation and hope for that day when you will make all things new. And Lord, we grieve for sin. We grieve for the way that it impacts our own personal lives, how it impacts our families, how it impacts this world. And we seek to do good and to turn away from sin and to live in righteousness and to exhibit righteous living to this lost world. But we know that the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so, Lord, I pray that we would look forward with anticipation, that we would grieve with hope as we look for the day that you will return. Pray that you would bless us now as we end our time in response, as we sing together in worship. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.